Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. If you're looking up in your Bible or your phone, it's also in your bulletin. Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor, that you have hated the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Keith. Uh, and yeah, just uh, to highlight to all of you that uh, <clears throat> this afternoon, Jamie is on a flight to South Africa, uh, where she'll be volunteering for a couple of months. So this is your last chance to say so long and best wishes and God bless, God speed, all that kind of stuff uh, before she goes. So take an opportunity to do that, Lord willing. She'll be back with us somewhere early March, yeah? Unless you're eaten by a hyena or something. Um, anyhow, so here we are on the brink of a new year. Um, new years are, are times where we think, uh, we think back and we think forward, we think about new opportunities, we think about changes that we can make in our lives, right, that, that maybe can improve uh, uh, our lives. Some of us have uh, committed to new uh, Bible reading plans, let's say, or committed to new exercise regimens, or committed to eating more vegetables, or whatever, or um, getting bigger, slower. You know, you have these kinds of New Year's resolutions. And it's also a time when uh, churches... Uh, it's good for them to kind of reflect on where they've been in, in the past year, but also as they look forward to kind of starting up again, uh, reorienting themselves. Um, we're not far from starting up ministries that have kind of gone quiet for a couple of weeks, uh, and as we are on the cusp of that beginning, afresh and anew, it's good for us to just kind of reorient ourselves to, to understand uh, what it is we're about, what it is that matters uh, to God in terms of the life of the church, so that we stay kind of on track. Because it's very easy, in fact, for any institution, churches included, to get off track. 
it's like, it's like golf. Golf is a, is a very frustrating game because um, you, you, you hit the ball, and sometimes what happens is, is you hit the ball, and it seems like it's on track, and it's going straight, and then like three-quarters of the way through its flight, all of a sudden things go sideways, like literally. At least that's what happens to me. And, and it's, all it took was a little way off track. And that can happen to an institution just like it can happen to a golfer. And so we're going to look just for a few minutes together this morning here at Revelation 2 where Jesus comes to this church in Ephesus and see how there was a church that went off track. Jesus comes and kind of does an audit on this church. So he, he kind of does an assessment and John who wrote uh, the book of Revelation, he invokes this image of an Old Testament priest whose job it was to tend the lampstand uh, in uh, the temple and make sure that the, the flames were, were lit on the candles, etc. And Jesus, the picture here is of Jesus walking through this Ephesian church and he's making an assessment of all these the things he sees happening, and uh, then he gives his kind of conclusion at the end. And what's amazing is, is that, well, here's the three things we're going to see. Let me, before I start getting all the amazing stuff. First of all, we're going to see what Ephesians did right, what the Ephesian church was doing right. Then we'll see what they were doing wrong, and then we'll learn some lessons from that. Those are the three things we're going we're gonna to look at. And, and the first point is this, the Ephesian church was doing all kinds of stuff right, all kinds of stuff. It's quite remarkable, in fact. Just so you know, um, the city of Ephesus was pretty much the biggest and most influential city of the ancient wor uh, world in, in Asia Minor, where it was located. It was a very cosmopolitan city, kind of like Toronto, okay? Uh, there were a lot of different cultures coming and going in there and um, uh, living uh, in the city as well, uh, and it was kind of famous for a couple of things. First of all, it was famous because it had this massive temple to the goddess Diana, or Artemis, and that's the goddess of, uh, uh, I think it's hunting and fertility, and so it was a, a center of that worship. It had a whole whack of temple prostitutes and all kinds of strange stuff there going on. Uh, but then it was also a center of what was called the imperial cult, which was the worship of the emperor, because Ephesus also had a lot of military people uh, living there. And so it was this big, influential city, and the church in Ephesus was a pretty impressive church. The Apostle Paul planted that church. He spent more time at that church than any of the other churches he planted. Three years he stayed there. Uh, to get this church kind of underway and undergo. Uh, and then also it had, it was led by a number of heavyweights down through the years as well. So for example, Timothy, who was a, an associate of Paul, he was a pastor there. Apollos was there. Priscilla and Aquila was there. And even John, who wrote the book of Revelation, he spent a period of time in Ephesus as well before he was exiled to this island of Patmos. And it was, it was a pretty impressive joint. First of all, it was impressive because, as it says in Revelation 2, um, it was a, a strong teaching church. So they were very strong on their doctrine. Apparently, you know, it says there that uh, in verse 2, 
it says, you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. So what happened was, was some people showed up in Ephesus and they said, we're apostles, meaning we're on the same level as the guys who wrote the New Testament. We have the same kind of authority. And they started trying to teach the Ephesians stuff that was different from what they had been taught by Paul when he was there planting the church. And they picked up on it and they recognized it and they said, no, 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 we're not buying what you're selling. Now that means that they were well-versed in the Bible's teaching. That means they knew what the Bible taught well because they were able to tell the counterfeit stuff from the true stuff. And you know, most false teaching that enters the church does not enter it from outside. It's not like some, you know, some non-Christian writer becomes really popular in the church and then the church starts, you know, adopting it all. Usually what happens is, is someone within the church rises up and brings sort of unbiblical teaching to the fore and people start to glom onto it. I'll give you one modern example. I, if I upset you, I am sorry I upset you, but I'm not sorry I said what I'm about to say. There's a book called Jesus Calling that came out in 2015, 2016, 2017, somewhere in that ballpark by a woman named Sarah Young, and it was a kind of a devotional sort of meditation kind of book that became like uber popular in a lot of evangelical circles. And a lot of people really liked this book and thought it said a lot of great stuff. But if you read the book carefully, what you discover is a lot of unbiblical teaching, including, first of all, that on some level you can, uh, you can hear personal messages from Jesus that are applicable to the wider church. And that's a very dangerous precedent. Why is that a dangerous precedent? Because your pastor could be standing here and say, well, Jesus told me all the women in this church have to have blonde hair. Now, I know that's a ridiculous example, but the principle is the same. I'm not going to spend more time, like, debunking Jesus calling. If you want to talk to me, if it's, like, your favorite devotional ever, come talk to me afterwards and hit me over the head with it if you want. That's fine. I can't go on about it. I'm just using it as an example and saying, look, here was a book that became very popular within the church that had some dangerous content to it. Now, the only way you're going to know that is if you know the real thing really well. One of the ways that uh, bank tellers are taught the difference between counterfeit money and real money is they spend a whole bunch of time handling lots and 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 lots of real money and then they start slipping counterfeits in there. And because you are so in tune with the real thing, you can tell the counterfeit just by touching it. Do you know that? What's my application? Well, guys, I mean, it's pretty easy. If you come to church once a week to listen to a sermon, and that's the extent of your study of God, you're just not hearing enough to be prepared and to be equipped to be able to discern what's dangerous false teaching and what is legitimate true teaching. We, we've got to read our Bibles. Okay, we're at, the new, we're at the beginning of the year. Get a Bible plan. Get a Bible plan and say, I'm going to commit to reading half the Bible in a year or the whole New Testament over the course of this year. And I'm going to read it really carefully. Or the whole Bible over the course of the year. I don't care. 
but get reading the Bible, the real thing. That's the first thing. We have a library at the church office with lots of good books on God and topics related to God. Read them. Get yourself into the real thing in some way. Come to your engage group. Start a book study with some friends. If you're not in the real deal, you're susceptible to the counterfeit. That's what we're trying to say here. So, that was the first thing they did. Second of all, what else made them good? They were faithful in discipline. It says that they didn't tolerate these wicked people. Um, we don't know what exactly, specifically they did, okay? But we do know that they could spot false teaching and they didn't just ignore it, they actually did something about it. And that something was more than simply disagreeing with it and saying, well, you know, we'll have to agree to disagree. They didn't say that. They, this is something we modern people struggle with a great deal. Look, I want to be liked. I don't want to tell you that Jesus Calling is not a good book because some of you might not like me afterwards, and I want you to like me. And you want other people to like you too, and we're Canadians. We want to live and let live as much as possible. We want everybody to like us. Everybody kind of does like us. And we work very hard at cultivating the kind of personality that makes sure that people like us. And you know one of the ways that you make sure people kind of like you is when you don't tick them off. It's when you don't say things that they don't like to hear. When you don't challenge them. When you don't push them. When you don't say they're wrong. We hate being told we're wrong. And I'm not just talking about the church telling specific people in an official capacity being wrong, but as a community, we have to be willing to at least hold one another accountable a little bit. We have to be able to speak truth into one another's lives. We have to be able to say to one another, look, this I think is wrong. From what I can tell, what you are doing is contrary to what the Bible teaches and if we don't speak up, and if we don't share these truths with one another, we may actually be complicit in their disobedience and responsible to God for our silence. Look, Jesus said, the world will hate you. If you are going to be a Christian, just get this through your head now, please. You are going to believe things that your culture thinks are not just weird, but dangerously wrong that are actually bad for the world and therefore you're not just different you're immoral and you will be hated and I don't mean necessarily hated with like people screaming in your face saying I hate you though that could happen but you'll be hated in the sense that your position your views will be marginalized and perhaps you yourself will experience levels of discrimination or at least uh, sort of the, the low burn resentment that people kind of communicate, you know, let me just, like, bad vibes. You'll at least feel bad vibes from people. But Jesus said, look, the world already hates me. So don't think that you're going to escape that hatred just by being a nice Canadian. If you're with me, this is what you are going to experience. And we need to hold each other accountable too. If you don't see someone coming to worship regularly and you care about them, you should ask them, where you been? What? Does going to church mean that's how I get to heaven? 
No. But I can tell you right now, not going to church certainly doesn't help you get to heaven either. And Jesus says we're supposed to meet together as brothers and sisters and worship him. So where have you been? I care about you. All right, moving on. Third thing. This was a hard-working church. Uh, I'm not going to say much about this because I don't really know what it means. Means, means, means. I don't know what it means. They were a hard-working church. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Scholars have all kinds of different ideas about what that meant, but basically it meant that this church knew that they were supposed to be busy for the Lord, and they were. They were active in the kingdom. But moving on, the next one is fascinating. In verse 3, perhaps the most remarkable thing about this church, it says, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. You have endured hardships for my name. I, I just talked about it, so I don't have to go into it deeply again. But they suffered for being followers of Jesus Christ, which means that the culture in which they live, the city of Ephesus, how many of them really know that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? Don't tell me they know you go to church. Whoop-de-doo. Do they know you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Do they know that there are things in your life that are simply dictated by Him? And really, if you had to be honest, you would admit that the only reason you do them the way you do them is because He said so. The only reason... You do them the way you do them is because he said so. Are there people who know that about your life? Because if they do know that about your life, then you may have to experience persecution or uh, uh, some kind of discrimination for your faith. Here's this Ephesian church. They're in Ephesus, which is a super-duper pagan city. In 54 AD, Nero becomes the emperor of Rome. Nero hates Christians, hates them with the capital H, hate and instituted all kinds of persecutions against the Christians, and yet somehow, in this extremely hostile environment, they did not hide their light under a bushel. They let it shine. Pretty impressive. And then one more very quickly. Verse 6, it says that, uh, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Um, they were morally pure. We don't know a lot about these Nicolaitans, but we know that they were a group within the church, kind of, that was compromising the Christian faith and marrying it with certain pagan religious practices. And because this is a Greek city with a massive uh, temple to a pagan god, one of the things that they were probably doing was um, uh, enjoying food sacrificed to idols, and saying that that was an important part of, of their, new, their Christian faith, you know, adopting that pagan practice, and also, in all likelihood, uh, a lot of sexual immorality. Because the city uh, had this temple for uh, this pagan god that had all kinds of temple prostitutes, and, and sex was a way of worshiping this God and the Nicolaitans were somehow participating in that because they believed, you know, the body's just a shell, it's just temporal, we are Christians, we're very spiritual beings now, so we just use our body any way, old way we want. Remember we talked about this for a few weeks together? It's as old as, like, there's nothing new under the sun, man. The stuff we're doing right now in our culture, it's been going on for a couple thousand years. And they were pushing back against that. 
The church was being pushed to bend and to participate in it, and they said no, because the culture doesn't determine the truth. The Word determines the truth. Now, notice something that all of these things have in common. They're all hard to do. They're all hard to do. It is hard. Don't kid yourself. It is hard to stay orthodox when you are the minority in a majority culture. It's not so hard to hold on to Christian values and morals and stuff when everybody else around you is holding on to Christian values and morals and stuff. But when you live in a culture where your values and morals and beliefs are at odds with what's going on in the world around you, well, then it is just plain hard to hold on to it, to keep it up. They were threatened from all different sides. And as I said, we, as a church, in our culture today, we are very often seen as a threat as well. Even though many of the things we believe, people around us would say, we kind of believe those things too, but you believe them for religious reasons, not just for humanitarian reasons. And that's why you're a danger to our culture, because you're fanatical, religiously fanatical. But listen, guys, I used it a couple times in the fall, I'm going to use it again because I think it's a great line. The human tendency is to choose what's easy over what is beneficial. That's what we do. We are, like my dad always likes to say, we're like water. Water always finds the easiest way downhill with the least resistance. And that's how human beings are. We choose the easy over the beneficial. And, and what I'm trying to argue here is that if we're going to Maintain the faith. It will not be easy. Oh, but it will be beneficial. So, that's what they did right. But yet, yet, they were doing something wrong. And it's rather stunning to think that this church that was doing all these things right, right doctrine, right discipline, right work ethic, right willingness to suffer, right morality, doing all these things right, that they could be doing one particular thing wrong that was so dangerous, so uh, fearsome, so worrisome that Jesus actually said, I will take your lampstand from you if this keeps going, which means I will remove you from my family. Like you will no longer be a part of my church if you keep this going. And what was it? He says this, You have forsaken the love you had at first. Or as other translations put it, you have forsaken your first love. What is he saying? They're doing all this stuff, but they don't really love Jesus. That's what he's saying. Now, how on earth does that happen? Like, When he says you've forsaken your first love, think of it this way. Those of us who have been married, this will work. If you haven't been married yet, anticipate. (laughs) And if you don't ever get married, anticipate Jesus marrying you, and then you'll know what I mean. Um, When you first get married, when you're first a newlywed, right? I, I was at a wedding yesterday, and my niece, she got married on my anniversary. How dare she? Um... You know, maybe it was getting fake after a while, but she had this really huge smile on, right? Like when she went down the aisle, right? And it looked like her face was going to shatter because it was just so big a smile because she was just so in love. And they they wrote their vows, and it was like one of the times I heard written vows that was actually good. And um, 
they wrote their vows and, and they talked about their commitment to one another and how love was more than just a, a feeling and an emotion and it was actually a commitment to another person through rich or through poor, through you know, good times and bad, all that kind of stuff. And, and what's fascinating when you look at newlyweds, this, they, they have this passion in their love for the other. It's like what, what God says in Jeremiah 2 to his people. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. In other words, you followed me through the desert. You went through like really hard times and the reason you did was because you were so passionately committed to me. And what, what Jesus is saying to this Ephesian church is he's saying, look, when you first came to faith, when you first entered your relationship with me you were you were enthused but you've abandoned that you've abandoned the innocence you've abandoned abandoned that enthusiastic passionate love for me those of you who have been a believer for a long time do you remember when you first understood the gospel like when you first got it even if you were raised in the church, I remember uh, a friend of mine who uh, has raised uh, their kids in the church. At one point, they said that their kid came from home, home from like a, it was a Bible study or a worship service or whatever, and their kid just flopped on the couch and says, I get it, it's all grace. And this kid was like 19 or 20, 18, 19, 20 years old, and they had been raised in the church. But all of a sudden, they, like it had it, the light had dawned. Do you remember when the light had dawned in your own heart, in your own mind, how this gospel, this picture of Jesus dying for your sins, how it gripped your heart? And how you, you had this passionate devotion to him. You wanted to read the Bible. You wanted to go to worship. You wanted to follow him. You wanted to, to share him. You wanted to minister uh, in his name. You wanted to do things for him. And then what happens is, is that over time, you kind of fall into routine, just like in a marriage, right? You know, when you first get married, it's like honeymoon is awesome, and we're, we're so deeply in love, and, and uh, you know, when you walk around, everybody else is kind of grossed out by your googly eyes for each other, and you're always holding hands, and, and it just, you know, it, it's, it's great. And then over time, things start to become routine. I always tell newlyweds, you know, you know you're, you're just on a long, really, really long honeymoon, and then you have kids, and all the wheels come off when you have kids. And then you become, you kind of get into routine, right? The more you get to know one another, the more you understand each other, the more you fall into routines because you still got to like live. You got to work. You got to cook food. You can't just stare at each other with googly eyes all the time. You have to continue to maintain your life. And so you fall into the routine. But what happens is, is potentially the routine becomes the focus rather than the person that you're involved in those routines with and your heart begins to grow cold. And this is precisely what was happening to the Ephesian church. They were doing all these right things, okay? But their heart wasn't in it. And Jesus wants your heart first and foremost. Listen, if you don't know much about Christianity, please understand what makes it utterly unique among all the great religions of the world is that the way you cultivate your faith as a Christian is not by the practices Yes, you're supposed to come to church. Yes, you're supposed to read your Bible. Yes, you're supposed to pray. Yes, you're supposed to do the right thing. Yes, you're supposed to do all those things. That's right. But the way that you actually cultivate your relationship with your God is by love, is by personal communion, 
You see, there's rules in Christianity, just like there's rules in all kinds of religions. But the rules are not the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is the relationship. See, Jesus is a person, and he loves his people, and he wants to be in a love relationship with his people. And the Ephesians had lost that. It just became about doing all the right things. And the heart was lost. Now, what's the lesson? There's a few things in the lesson, but we'll go through them very quickly. How do we, how do we avoid this, becoming like this? How does Grace Valley become, like, avoid becoming one of these churches that's like really active and really doing stuff, but not really in love with Jesus? First is remember. Always remember. Look at verse 5. It says, Consider how far you've fallen. Consider how far you've fallen. In order to do that, you have to look back and you have to remember how things were. Consider the heights from which you've fallen, other translations put it. You have to think about when you first came to know your Savior and think about that, how you fell into the loving arms of your Lord and how you basked in His love and His forgiveness and His grace. And listen, If you are having trouble remembering, there are people you should talk to. And they're not going to like that I use their names, but I did, at least with one of them, I told them it was coming. Um, You should talk to Kendra and you should talk to Mernie. Because these are two people who didn't grow up being taught about the gospel and are not over-familiar with it but who have come to faith in the last two or three or four or whatever years, and when you ask them to describe their relationship with Jesus, they can barely keep from crying immediately because they're so happy, because they've, they're so amazed that they could actually be forgiven and they get to wake up every day and not feel the, ga- the guilt that just weighs you down when you focus on how much you suck but Jesus took that all away. So if you're, if you're having a hard time remembering, talk to people who are like in it right now. And they will, honestly, you spend 10 minutes listening to them and you will leave with a refreshed, newfound passion for your Lord too. It's impossible not to. So always remember. The second thing is, is always repent. Always repent. You notice that he says this in verse 5, repent and do the things you did at first. Repent is not just saying, oh, Jesus, sorry, I forgot that I'm supposed to love you more. I'll try to do that. It means to meditate on this Jesus and what he has done for you. It means to see him, to picture him on that cross and remember that as he's dying, he's got your name on his lips. He's thinking about you in his mind and in his heart. He's saying, I'm doing this for them. I know absolutely everything about them. I know all the screw-ups they're going to commit. I know all the ways they're going to reject me. I know all the times they're going to fail me. But I love them so much that I will take God's justice and punishment for them. And as you meditate on that, you start, to, you start to look at your sin and you start to say, I hate that stuff. That stuff, look what it did to my Savior who died for me. I hate it. I hate it so much. I'm going to turn away from it and I'm going to hold on to my Savior, Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. That's what it means to repent. 
And you run back to him again because his arms, even though he's no longer on the cross, his arms are still wide open waiting to embrace you. And then the last thing is return. Why? Why did I say that? Oh, do the things you did at first. Verse 5, once again. What were the things that... What were the things that made you deepen your fellowship with Jesus when you first came into relationship with Him? It's going to be stuff like we, we say all the time. It's going to be, I went to worship... I prayed, I read the Bible, I listened to Christian music, I read books about God, I spent time with other Christians talking about the gospel. It's going to be all that kind of stuff. Well, it's a new year, peeps. Fire it up, start it up. Don't come to me in three months and say, ah, my relationship with God is really floundering. And I say, well, what are you doing? And you say, well, yeah, I don't really do personal devotions, I don't really pray, I don't, and, but I don't understand why God is not like really showing himself to me. Come on! You're not feeling it with your boyfriend or girlfriend either if you never contact them and spend time with them and take them out to eat or go to a movie together or sit on the couch and just look at each other and talk about your hopes and dreams. You're not going to feel it for them either. God's a person! Don't forget that. He's a person. He's a real person. He's not an energy. He's not a force. This isn't Star Wars. This is real life. And he is a being with a personality, and he wants to be in actual relationship with you. You got to communicate. And finally, look at the promise, okay? Look at the promise. In verse 7, he says, to the one who is victorious, and what he means by that is the one who, the one who returns to his first love I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Well, if you know the book of Genesis, what happened? Adam and Eve ate that tree. Or they, sorry, they ate, they ate the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And therefore they died in, spiritually and they were not allowed to eat from the tree of life. But, but you and I can eat from that tree. How is that possible? Well, because Jesus climbed the tree for us. That cross was his to bear and he bore it so that you and I could know that tree as a tree of life. George Herbert said this, and I'll close with these words from her poem, The Sacrifice. O all ye that pass by, behold and see, man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree, the tree of life to all, but only me. That tree was a tree of death for our Savior so it could be a tree of life for us. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for even this audit that Jesus does in the church in Ephesus. Um, we pray that we would take a lesson from them and that we would make knowing you as our Lord, knowing you as our Savior, knowing you as our friend, our top priority, and not make doing the right things to please you uh, our top priority. May those right things flow out of our passionate love for you. And where do we find that love? We find that love when we look at the cross and we see Jesus dying voluntarily for us. 
because he loves us even more than we love ourselves. Thank you for him and all he's done for us. In his name we pray, amen.